Hi, I'm Anna Rosa Parker. And I'm Daniel Lamb, and this is Artist Inclusive, the podcast for ambitious artists who want to find clarity, community, and creative success. Hey, Anna, I'm really excited about today for a lot of reasons. A, we have an amazing guest that needs no introduction, but she'll get one. And then also to just talk about the next few episodes in this series on professionals in the entertainment business. Yeah, I am very excited about all four, all four of them, all the next four interviews, including today. Yeah, we started off the last four batch. We did more kind of marketers, women specifically who have all created their own businesses. And we talked about content and marketing and, and now we go into the entertainment industry, which is great. And I know the community is very excited about these four interviews. Do you want to introduce our guest today? I would be honored to introduce the incomparable Helen Hunt. If you don't know who Helen Hunt is, you've been living under a rock since the 90s. She has been on many stages and television screens and silver screens across the country for many years. She's won Academy Awards, Emmys, you name it, she's done it. And we're going to get into a really great conversation with Helen Hunt about what it is to go pro and stay pro for a lifetime in a career. She will talk about a lot of things, and I don't want to spoil another minute of this. So with that, we give you Helen Hunt. Hi, Helen. Hi there. Thank you for being here on the exclusive podcast. We're just thrilled. I was just envisioning earlier, I was like, okay, she can just maybe dance into the the virtual podcast room like she did in the scene in Blind Spotting. <laughs> it'd, it'd be a good life to dance through like that character does. Oh my God, that's that show <laughs> is everything. One of the things that came up when Daniel and I were talking and when you had gracefully accepted to come on and we were just thinking like, you know, you come across as such a kind person and, and so genuine. And I was wondering how that has been for you as a woman in Hollywood you know, especially before the Me Too movement and people start to speak more openly about being a human being. Do you have to be like a, a tough ass, you know, or can you kind of showcase your kindness? How do you approach things as, as a woman in Hollywood? Well, imperfectly, I'm sure. <laughs> But, you know, unfortunately, if you're talking about Me Too in terms of fair treatment, being safe from sexual harassment, that sort of thing, you can be as tough ass as you want, it's not going to save you from being assaulted on a movie set. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter if you're tough or kind. But I think it does matter now that there is a, a culture, I heard LeVar Burton call it a consequence culture. And while there's plenty of imperfections with this system that's not a system, it has made an environment that calls for more accountability. It has made an environment. It's still imperfect. It's still the Wild West. It's still not systemically in place as much as I hope it one day is. But it used to be there was no recourse. It used to be that the feeling in the workplace was good luck. And now there is a sense that there will be, there could be real consequences for inappropriate action. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, Hugely important and a lot to work on still. But yeah, we're grateful for every movement that takes a couple of steps forward, at least. 
I heard you on another podcast, Black in the Air, and I heard you say that you never not want to be acting, that acting is really good for you. And I just want to hear you dive into how it's good for you. I mean, I'm an organized person, you know, being a mother is sort of like running a little company. <laughs> You're making sure and that and it's ever changing because their needs are ever changing. And in terms of my own life, I've juggled a lot of different parts of my career at once. That takes a lot of planning and scheduling and implementing and organizing. Directing takes a lot of left brain and also right brain kind of work and in terms of prep and making sure you've allotted enough time. and But in the middle of that is something much less civilized and much less controlled and controlling, which is the art, the work itself, the acting work itself. And there's no way to be a good actor and not use your whole body. Even if you're in a close-up that's as tight as the square of a Zoom box, I think the best acting and directing and sometimes writing is physical. The breath is involved. Your memories are involved. Your dreams are involved. Your toes are involved. And it's very good for me to have at least part of what I do, maybe most of what I do involve all of me, my emotions, my hopes and dreams, my imperfections, you know, your imperfections as an actor kind of are your bread and butter. They are the thing that you make work out of. So it's it's good for my very organized brain to blow all that up and and throw myself into an acting part, if it's the right part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To use your whole being, your entire being. and uh, Yeah. And be open. And are you like spontaneous actress or do you have everything kind of mapped out before? I mean, I'm absolutely both. The, yeah. You know, the, the actors I respect the most when I read biographies of Mike Nichols or all the best filmmakers in the world, you know, the best Art comes with tons and tons and tons of preparation, which you then throw away when you walk on the stage or walk onto a movie set and whatever sticks is what was meant to be there. And so I find it's constantly a tightrope walk if I'm reaching for whatever I prepared. I think Marlon Brando said, I don't want to show up on a movie set and just do what I thought of the night before in the bathtub. So if I'm only <laughs> clinging onto my plans, the work is going to be just sort of dead and regurgitated. If I think I can get away with not preparing, I know enough to know that I will not get away with that. So it's it's a good 50% of both for me. Yeah. One of my acting teachers, she said, she called it, you probably shouldn't use that word anymore, you know, today, but she called it crazy. She was like, she has the crazy. He doesn't have the crazy. Oh, yeah. 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 I was like, okay, well, I'm just crazy on and off stage. (laughs) You've been in, you've been in this business for a while. You you started as as a child, right? Yeah. When I was nine years old, even before that, I was studying acting. That's amazing. So have you ever had another job that is not? In, in not the industry. Really. <laughs> not really. I mean, I've done a lot of jobs within the industry, you know. I'm a writer and a director and an actor and a teacher, so I've done a lot of different things within this kind of storytelling, but I've never left out and done anything much not in this. Yeah. So do you teach regularly, ongoing? I do, yeah. My father, Gordon Hunt, taught an acting class for decades and decades and decades that gave birth to all sorts of wonderful actors and writers. People were invited to come into the class with original material to direct material, but mostly it was actors. And I was in that class for many, many years and subsequently studied with dozens of other people. And then when toward the end of my dad's life, he was only able to teach part of the time, so a wonderful teacher named Richard Gilbert Hill, and I would take turns coming in and taking over the class. And then when my dad passed away, we just couldn't stand the thought of these lovely actors. My dad seemed to attract very kind, creative people. We couldn't stand the thought of them no longer having the fellowship of each other and his way of teaching. So we kept the class going, and now we 
he teaches for a few weeks. I teach for a few weeks. So I love it. So what if somebody is listening to this podcast and is like, oh my God, I can study with Helen Hunt. (laughs) How do they? It's the Gordon Hunt acting workshop. Okay. All right. That's very, very cool. We'll definitely list that in the show notes. So how has that success, for example, how has that evolved over the the entire process of your long-lived career? It ebbs and flows and ebbs and flows and ebbs and flows. There are very few people who stay at some high, high, high level of top of the pack over time, you know, and even if you do, I've heard, you know, Meryl Streep and Jim Carrey and Dustin Hoffman talk about how you never feel that, ah, I finally got there. You know, the minute you start feel like you're no longer obscure, you begin to worry that you're no longer relevant. So if you're in the business of worrying, it's a really good business because there's always things to worry about. But but I found a couple of decades ago, I was sort of at one of those peak moments with Emmys in one hand and an Oscar in the other. And I thought, I'm sure I won't be able to keep this up. And I don't know that I want to keep this up. I want to have a real life and I want to have... I want to be a civilian and an actor, but I want the celebrity to help me continue to get good jobs, you know, get good parts that I want to play. So it's a delicate balance. And 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 as an actor, you only do a little bit of the balancing. Fate does a lot of it. Luck does a lot of it. And I've just navigated it the best I can. Yeah. Do you feel like, I mean, you're still to the theater though, right? I mean, I do as soon as there's theater again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right before uh, lockdown, a few months before lockdown, I did a musical production of Working in New York that was one of those 10-day city center productions with incredible, incredible, the best musical theater artists I know. And it was totally thrilling. And I'm really glad I got to do it before we all had to walk out of the theater for over a year. Yeah, we're hoping that New York is back in fall, but what do we know? Good time for a plug for vaccines, in my opinion. Yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. I'm happy to make an unabashed plug for vaccines. Yeah. Please do. Please do. Yeah. 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 Wow. Here in the South, we're seeing so many people who are resistant to it. And it's such a weird vibe. Here in LA, we're seeing so many people. It's everywhere. It's, um, It's bizarre. It's bizarre to me. Yeah. I feel that feeling of like in wartime, you know, when you're, oh, we're going to ration. Okay, we're going to ration. We've been asked to do this one thing. And when I think about, you know, kids not getting to go back to school in the fall and businesses closing and restaurants closing, and I just, I don't know, hand-wringing doesn't seem to be helping. Yeah. And being sure that I'm right also isn't helping. So I'm not sure what will help, but I can only hope and encourage people I'm in contact with to, to get a vaccine. That's what's so brutal, too, that people that are not getting vaccinated and, and how it really is hurting children. We had Aubrey Lynch, he's a dancer and an educator on the show, and he just like was talking about how these children have been robbed over a year and, and it's going to be like a gap in their whole, in their lives. I mean, one, I think at least my daughter, Psyche can handle, but if she doesn't have a senior year, it's it's going to be um, terribly upsetting. So I'm hope, hopeful, hopeful, hopeful. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I know you are, I mean, you have, because I've heard you speak about where you're openly, you support social justice, you, you're an ally. I heard you say that you're an awkward ally. I don't really know what that, but I, you know, I think it's so admirable when people like you stand up and, and speak openly about, you lead with values and that's just so admiring. Do you want to tell us a little bit where, why you're so passionate about it? I went through something really challenging about five or six years ago, and that led me down a path, a whole world of restorative justice, which I learned about. And that led me into a conference about restorative justice and race. And so whatever, five or so years before 2020, I was reading a lot of the material that a lot of white people have been asked to consider reading in the last year. So I, you know, 
a five-year jump isn't a lot, but it allowed me to meet a lot of people and do a lot of reading and do a lot of thinking and hopefully some waking up. So that's sort of how that started for me. And then the work that I'm drawn to and that I create usually speaks to that in some way, just because it's the thing that I care about. That kind of comes through with your character, Rini, in um, Blind Spotting. And I was going to ask a little bit about how, what you brought to that role and like, how did you prepare to like become that persona? Because she kind of reminds me of my mother who was very aloof, but alive and like wildly compassionate, but also kind of, there's that scene where you're like smoking a cigarette and folding this towel very feverishly. And it just, for me, it was kind of an evocative moment. And so I just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it may be related because I saw the trailer for the movie Blind Spotting, and, and that was again before June of 2020. And it was everything I'd been reading about in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. You know, it just was speaking. It it immediately intrigued me. I went on opening day or something with a friend of mine and I posted something on social media about how much I love the movie because as an independent filmmaker, you just pray that somebody will put a little wind at your back and get the word out about your movie if it moves them. Blind spotting for people who haven't seen it yet. They should watch it tonight. But it was a movie made by Rafael Casal and David Diggs, who in real life grew up as best friends in Oakland and wrote a movie and starred in it and produced it about two best friends who grew up in Oakland, one of whom is David's character who's on his last three days of parole and he witnesses a police shooting and that threatens to crush his parole and send him back to prison. His uh, very beloved but violent friend threatens to send him back to prison. And so it's the tension of getting through those three days. And I loved it. And I posted about it. And Raphael immediately wrote something back and we pinged each other back and forth and ended up very quickly. He and I have something in common, which is we're sort of like, well, let's do it then. Let's not talk about it. Let's do it. So very quickly, we were having some cup of coffee somewhere and said, we should be working together. You care about what I care about. So we had all sorts of ideas. One was to do a Twister sequel that the three of us would write and I would direct about black and brown storm chasers coming from an HBCU in uh, Nashville. And we got all excited about that and got smacked down by the studio in question. But it made us, but we loved working together. And meanwhile, I knew that they were talking about a television series of blind spotting, which I thought, just like when I heard Twister sequel, I'm like, that's not what I want to do. Oh, it's about climate justice. Oh, that's what I want to do. Similarly, I thought a TV series of blind spotting. And then he said, it's going to be focusing on the group of women and how this, how the neighborhood and this, particularly these two families are affected by mass incarceration. I went, oh, and it's a comedy. I thought, oh, I want to do that. So I drank champagne with them when they got their green light to make their show. And then they said, will you be in it? And I said, yeah. One of the other things that I thought was really remarkable and interesting about about the production of this was the, in addition to the humor, because it really is quite funny, there's this sort of breaking of the fourth wall with this sort of theatrical presentation of dance and spoken word. And it feels very sort of like, I don't know, post-postmodern or something. It's very cool. And I and honestly, I haven't seen the movie, but where was that coming from? I mean, it comes, I, th- I know the spoken word comes from Raphael and David, both of whom are poets and teachers of poetry and rappers and spoken word artists. So that's where that comes from. And in terms of dance, I mean, what I know about Oakland as someone who, you know, lives six hours south and has close people from there is that it's just art, art, art exploding everywhere. And so how they got to the idea of John Bugs and Little Buck doing what they do on that show, I don't know, but it's pretty inspired. This was one season. I mean, you don't, do you know, are we guys going to 
I mean, they're starting to talk about writing the second season, but nothing has officially been picked up. So we'll see. Yeah. And you shot this in during COVID or we said during yeah. some of the worst of COVID with lots of masks and testing every day and shields. and Yeah. Well, that doesn't show. It It looks so good. No, you can't tell. It's amazing. I, yeah. I pray that it, when we, if we do a season two, that we can actually be closer together and have more physical contact. Yeah. Well, if, if people get vaccinated, you know, we can come we can. back together. Yeah. Yeah. So how did those protocols, you know, the masking and the, the distancing and the daily temp checks and everything, how did that affect like the work environment for you? I feel like, thank God, everybody, they were theater people, trained actors who know there's always something I'm always telling actors in the class, like there will always be something to mess you up. So make sure that your preparation is so deep. You know it so well. You have physical warm ups to do because if it's not COVID, it's somebody's Apple watch going off in the middle of your monologue, or it's somebody crinkling candy, or it's a grip chatting with another grip right in your eye line. Like there's always, it's, it's, it's the middle of summer and you're playing dead winter or the opposite. Like there's always something to mess you up. So, so this was just a grand version of that. Um, it was lonely, you know, nobody eats lunch together. It's efficient. <laughs> you come in, go to your little room with your makeup and hair people. You come in, you rehearse. Everybody wants to get off the clock more than ever. You eat in your trailer, but some of the fun was lost. I don't do a lot of going out for a drink after work anyway. I have a daughter and any of that certainly didn't happen. And this is a group that might have really enjoyed that. So we're hoping that's in the future. Yeah, that off the set, you know, like green room kind of culture. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that wasn't there. What fascinates you nowadays? What does it take to really fascinate you? I mean, I think I'm fascinated by the things I've always been fascinated by, but even more so. I mean, history reveals itself again and again to hold more than certainly we knew as American kids. Great writing. I just read two of Isabella Wilkerson's books, Warmth of Other Sons and, and her book Cast, which is getting a lot of attention now. So great writing. Jasmine Ward, I just read two novels by her. I've posted about all this just again, to like using social media for something that means something to me. My daughter fascinates me. My own outrage that so much of what's happening is not very fascinating actually it's really boring and not helping yeah so i'm deep in study of what i might do other than being righteous about my opinion yeah so you do you like social media you're on instagram i saw you on my i am i used to be on twitter and it just sort of faded away i do i mean it's a little bit part scrapbook part platform part self-promotion you know mm-hmm. if it makes more people see blind spotting or it makes more people see the next movie i do that's great if I can find somewhere to yelp my opinion of the day, if I can make someone laugh, if I can say happy birthday to someone, that's all fine. It's like a big scrapbook. And don't you feel like we can be more and more open about things or have you always been? Have you always? No, I'm more open than I used to be. I mean, I'm a private person and I guess this has been a way to dislodge that a little. I know the paparazzi still go after very, very famous people, but I think there's got to be a little less of it now. If we're all taking selfies of ourselves by our swimming pools, are they <laughs> quite as motivated to climb over your gate? I don't know, because I don't live that kind of life anymore. But yeah, I think like many people, I just saw a Taylor Swift documentary, and she talked about getting to this point, even with a lot of fans who did not agree with her point of view. She was just like, I can't not do it anymore. So I, I understand that feeling. And that's, by the way, that That gets to be that removed decision because you aren't, you know, surviving as a black man in America where it's been personal since before you were born. Yeah, 100%. So I was just want to go back to a little bit to your work. And you said that you're logical, you're more of a, would you say you're more of a, a linear than nonlinear person? No, I just mean that that kind of work comes easily. And I think if I didn't have something like acting and writing where you have to use your imagination, you have to use your whole body, you have to be 
willing to be wild in your thinking that I might slip into a life that's very about planning and organizing and and directing at its best asks for both things. But that's rare. I think that's if you have some kind of authorship over the feeling of authorship or actual authorship over the material, then you're you have a real skin in the game of, of how it comes out. I see. Yeah. Do you see yourself directing more and more? And I've directed quite a bit of television. I made two movies. So I, I see myself directing material that I've either written or, as I said, feel a sense of authorship about. I don't feel like a director for hire who has to get her next directing project. But I do, in a way, directing your own script, it's like getting to write another draft. And editing is another draft. And you just keep working and working, coming at it from different angles to tell the story you're trying to tell. Yeah, so you're not for hire. You, I see. That's. Yeah. I mean, I am, I suppose, but, but I that... My passion is to find pieces of material that I love enough to either write them or feel like I've written them and then bring that to life. Yeah. Have you found that to be a process that you enjoy when, say, you've written a piece and then you get to actually direct it? And so going through the process of making those translations from the page to the screen or from the editing to what it becomes. Yeah, I love it. I mean, you're trying to describe a character and you do it in in the stage direction and then you do it in the dialogue and the behavior and then you get to do it by what colors they choose to wear and how they walk and what kind of light they're in. And I just watched The Graduate last night and I'm reading Mike Nichols' book. So I'm seeing how Mrs. Robinson walks in head to toe, including her underwear in leopard print into an overgrown, you know, jungle of a backyard. It's pretty fun. Must be fun. Must have been fun to be, have his brain. Are you, are you a visual person? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably a word person first, but yeah, I am. I know when I like it and I know when I don't like it and I know what I want it to say. I may not know all the ways to get there, but I know, I know what I want the scene to accomplish in the script. So when you're directing and you're working with designers, you, you collaborate with them, you know what you, what you want it to look like. Yeah. And, and the Mm -hmm. thrill when you suddenly have a designer who comes in with an idea of their own or something they thought of when they read the script, you just suddenly feel like your isolation is broken and there's other artists in there that are going to make your dreams come true. It's pretty fantastic. Wow. When you're teaching, are you teaching acting? Are you teaching about the business also? Like, do you address that at all? Very little. It's really about the acting. There are other classes for how to navigate the business. And I don't really know, you know, how to do it, especially as a newer actor coming up. There are basic things I suggest that my father always suggested about creating your own work, creating groups of people who read plays together or make work together, you know, unlike being a painter, it seems like you can't act unless someone hires you. But I think you have to find a way to act if you're an actor so that you're getting to do the thing you love isn't dependent on someone on the other side of a table at an audition. But the class really works on the nuts and bolts of acting. And and what I offer is as an actor, here's what I do when I feel like that. Here's what I do when someone tells me something doesn't isn't quite working. Here's what how I prepare take what you like and leave the rest. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, and then like you said, you recommend people having community, having working together and that's that can lead to the work too. Yeah, it absolutely can. It absolutely can. Just in life in general, just like finding some kind of a success is having a community. You know, having people that have different strengths and talent. and I need to be in fellowship, which is why, like for so many people, you know, the last year has been hard. So I'm lucky to live in a city that we can sort of sit outside on the grass and have some form of fellowship. But I need it. I really need to gather with people for my art and just for my psyche. 
Yeah. Was that your lockdown? You had some sitting outside in lockdown? Yeah. And in fact, with Raphael and David, we spent a good amount of the pandemic in sleeping bags on my not very big lawn watching movies on a projector. I, I bought. Yeah, it's been fun. Last night we did it outside. I was hoping it was for the first time just for fun, but with the COVID creeping up, I was also glad to be outside. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about, you know, Zoom performance? It is so hard and I can't, I have a friend who teaches improv and a daughter who has taken improv and that's very challenging. I see the actors in my class working on scenes and they are doing it. They are showing up using their bodies and wardrobe that they put together and preparing and I'm so impressed. They're going to be ready when they're hired. You know what I mean? They are warmed up and ready to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I also find that you really can get to the acting issues on Zoom. It's not as much fun. Yeah. You know, the most fun thing about acting is the part where you go get coffee after you've been acting. That's the best part. And that's what my daughter's missing this summer. She's in a, an acting intensive right now in her room on fucking Zoom. Pardon me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but you really can do the work. I, I wondered if you'd even be able to get to acting issues on Zoom. And I, I really think you can. So these kids who are kids, some of whom are in their 70s in my class, but these actors are working hard and it's mattering. They are learning, their acting is improving. And I'm stealing from all of it. When I went to work on blind spotting, I'd look at a scene and have that feeling you always have as an actor, which is, I don't know how to do this. And I would say, what would I say to the acting class? I would say, read it 50 times. I would say, write down whatever comes to you. I would say, what do the other characters say about you? I would say, how might you walk? I would say, you know, just all the tools I share with them, I then had to sort of re-say to myself. Yeah, so you're really a teacher at heart. You grew up with that. And I guess so. You don't, you feel like an imposter until you've been doing it a while, and then you go, I guess this is it. Yeah, imposter syndrome. Yeah. I mean, in, acting on Zoom, you can't really, I mean, you're not really acting with your whole. But you have to. I tell them all the time, I'd rather have you pop out of the box and stand up and I only see you from your nose to your chest for a minute than perfectly stay in your little square and check the boxes, you know, use your body. And remember that the other, my daughter just heard from a teacher there, remember that the other person has a whole body. And if you were in a room together, you'd be sensing that and smelling that and your molecules would be bouncing off of each other. So you just try, I once told an actor in the class, somehow try to smell them through Zoom, see if you can, you know, any way to bring this flat thing to life, which by the way, is the job of the actor on the set. Now you're acting to a piece of tape or you've got a green screen or you're pretending you're on Mars. It's so much of it is made up anyway, especially with more computer animation. So it's, it is good practice. Use your imagination, use your body, even if the circumstances aren't putting you on a beach for a beach scene. Yeah. 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 And voiceover acting. And we had a voiceover director yesterday or a couple of days ago. And certain things that I didn't think about. That This is a little bit of a digression. And it was one that we had on here. And I just kind of love to ask this question to people, which is, how do you structure your day? Like, how do you start your day? Do you have a like a, a morning routine that you love? Well, I try to get one quick glimpse of my daughter before she steals away to her morning. So if I can time it out to like see her for seven minutes and hand her a cup of tea, I do that. I walk a lot and I'm really good in the morning and later in the day, I just don't. I'm sort of great in the morning. I had these big dialogue scenes in blind spotting and when they were, you know, when my call was 5 a.m., I'm fantastic. But when I'm at the end of the day, I need a lot of 
caffeine meditation and push-ups in my trailer. I write I'm with a writing partner now. And so I'm, I'm working, we sort of work around each other's schedules. If I'm on a show, we work when it's convenient for me. He just started in a writer's room today. So I can't write with him until four. I watch baseball while I cook. I see friends when I can outside. I don't know. I guess that's my life. What do you cook? What's your, what's your favorite? <laughs> yeah. I like Mexican food. I, I don't know. I cook all sorts of stuff. Yeah, especially nowadays. I mean, two or three meals a day in the, the last year and a half. But I've been for the last, I don't know, decade or so. I like, it's one of the things as you are less hands-on with your kids, you can still fill the house with the smell of a meal, you know, and I like that. I just enjoy it. I really enjoy it when I have the Dodgers on. Okay. I didn't know that. That's cool. I don't, I don't understand baseball. I mean, I'm from Iceland and we didn't have baseball. So anyway. You have so many other things. You're doing so much better than us. Let us have baseball. <laughs> you can have baseball. Yeah. But I try to understand and I go to a game. You can understand it. it yeah. You know, because it's so slow and boring. You'll totally understand. Because it. it's so slow. That's I, why don't I don't find it boring. But, um, but its slowness might be your friend if you ever want to understand it. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're so grateful for you taking I'm the time. I'm so grateful too. Thank you for asking me to do it. I appreciate it. It's a great thing you're making. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Nice to meet you both. Nice meeting you. It was nice meeting you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay, this was such a treat. It was just an incredible time with Helen Hunt. She gave us so much. I'm just so grateful for our time. What did you take away from this interview? How, what, what do you think, Daniel? Wow. You know, having to distill that conversation down into a takeaway is, I feel like we should have a masterclass on how to do takeaways, uh, starring this episode. But I would say that the really, the thing that really stuck with me was the fact that despite being a veteran as an actor, she still has hard days on the set. When she talked about what to do when you're at a plateau or in a rut, literally breaking things down like you would for your students, you know, giving that that concrete approach to getting into the character, shaking things up and really drilling down, even if you don't feel like it. And I think that that is really from a writer's perspective like me, I have to go pro every day because sometimes I'll sit down to write and I just don't want to do it. You know, it's like leading a very moody mule to the water and he doesn't want to drink. And so to hear, you know, somebody like so inspiring, like Helen to kind of go through that same sort of thinking and that same sort of struggle. It really humanizes the whole concept of being a professional to me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I'm usually not starstruck, but there was something in the beginning. I, I, <laughs> I was kind of, It took me a while to form my sentences, but hopefully producers will clean that up. Um. <laughs> totally. So, like, what was what was really sticking out to you? Because I know that there is just so much in this interview. Yeah, and there's so much in, in not that long of a time in a way. You know what I mean? I felt like she was so precise and thoughtful with her answers. I just love to hear how she approaches acting when she was just talking about your whole being is in it. You know, she talked about, you know, your toes and your feelings and your dreams and all that. And, and even to bring that onto the screen when you're on zoom and you know, that is challenging, but I just loved hearing about that and then how she, she's still teaching and her father's studio, the uh, Gordon Hunt, acting workshop 
is very much alive today that she still offers classes there. And I don't even think they're that expensive. So, I mean, that would be an incredible thing. If I was still acting, I would definitely try to squeeze into her sessions. And then I also, I don't know, there's this such casualness about her. And then you just, she's so warm and kind and, and very thoughtful. I, you know, obviously I love that she's, she stands up and, and speaks openly about social justice and, and she's choosing very and very thoughtful work. And I mean, I'm sure she always has. And I don't know. I just think she's so inspiring in, in so many different ways. And, and she's at a place in her life where she doesn't have to try. She has such an authority. I'm sure she's still, it's still, she has to find the right work and the, the work that speaks to her. But I think she's in a really exciting place in life. That's kind of came off to me. Yeah, there was a line that she mentioned that I've that I've been hanging on to for the past few weeks since we talked to her, which was show business entertainment is a great industry for people who like to worry. As you're establishing your career and you're trying to make it, you're worried about whether or not you're visible and making it. And then once you've made it, you're worried about maintaining a sense of authority or a sense of relevance. And so this sort of ego rat race that that can happen. The way she described it was really inspiring. And it was really interesting to sort of shift the idea of what really is success. Because obviously, when you look at somebody like her, who's been acting since she was in diapers, basically, it's easy to point and say that's success. But as we'll unpack in these next several interviews, success takes on many different outfits. Yeah, definitely. It was just a treat to you know, it always is to listen to artists and and you kind of get to visit how what their process is like. It just comes through and it's very authentic with her, obviously, and, and how she speaks to it. Yeah, I'm very happy that she came to spend time with us to add value to our community and inspiration. And I think that's very much who she is. Like she would she liked the idea of the community and she wanted to contribute her time to it. So I thought that was just really, really cool of Helen Hunt. She's the coolest. Yeah, completely. And, you know, she talked about the value of community and the value of having, you know, those people around you as an artist. And that's so important. And I just want to say before we wrap up here that it really is a privilege to get to do something like this. And I don't take it for granted. I feel very uh, fortunate to have had this experience. It was, it was great. It was remarkable. Helen's awesome. Yeah. The Artist Inclusive Podcast is brought to you by the Artist Inclusive Facebook group and artistinclusive.com. Learn more about Artist Inclusive at our website or join our free Facebook group. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and share this message with somebody that you think would enjoy this podcast. This is how you're able to reach more engaged and impactful artists just like you.